to the Frame of Reference podcast. My name is Ashish. My aim is to have long-form conversations, dialogue, personal and professional introspection, while talking about challenges and stories that everyday people and listeners can agree to. Topics include third culture, personal identity, figuring out skill sets for growth, and finding a life mission, all of which I find are important topics for us to discuss in length. I still have yet to accomplish all of my goals. Life gets in the way, and that's okay. I want to normalize being normal. Revel in some of the things we may take for granted about ourselves. Experience and understand the journey. Everything worth talking about needs a frame of reference. Let's frame it right. episode I speak with Lansana Kamara. This conversation was so easy. Speaking with Lansana was like speaking with one of my high school friends or university friends growing up. There's an unspoken connection there and that's so unique to, to third culture kids in general. We dissect a few things in this conversation such as the idea of emotional intelligence in a world full of left brain thinking balance in religion and ethnicity growing up, and linguistics playing a role in development. Something that came up organically in our conversation was also coding as a language. That's a a really interesting topic that we sidestepped into. There's a lot of tangents in here that I just enjoyed going into. I could talk to Lansana for hours. He's a bright personality with a lot of talent to go with it. Let's dive straight into the podcast. All right, Lansana, how is it going? I'm doing great. How about you, Ashish? Doing well, doing well. So I'm sitting here in Toronto and uh, you're sitting in? Seattle. Seattle. All right. Awesome. It's great to, to connect. And we we basically met over this Reddit post. You know, for me, I was sort of like looking for... Uh, people to sort of chat about the third culture phenomenon, just the idea of third culture in general. And a lot of folks that I've been chatting with have had different, you know, uh, ideas with what they want to sort of chat chat about in general and what they wanted to talk about. Um, What really got you into uh, the the idea of third culture? What got you familiar with the term? And, um, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, how I first came about the term of third culture was just maybe scrolling through Reddit and maybe I like found the subreddit mm-hmm. and uh, there was like a post. I don't remember what the post was about at this point in time, but it kind of resonated with me a little bit. And so I started following the subreddit and like apparently there's like a whole group of people who are, you know, who've, who've lived under like similar circumstances as me in the sense that, you know, they've. They were maybe a, maybe they were uh, they were born in like one area and then they were raised in another area and their parents also have like a different cultural background than than like what they were brought up in or what they were born in and so they've experienced like these many different lifestyles many different cultures and like you know they they have uh, 
they've experienced different ways of living life. And, uh, you know, that's something that really resonated with me because that's been my own experience, right? Like I was born in a third world country in Guinea. Um, I came to America when I was like four or five years old. Um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in Kansas and, you know, I've, I've, since then I've moved around like almost every single year in my life. So I'm always in like a new state, always going to a new school. Uh, I've lived in, you know, I've been in Europe. I've lived in Asia. I've been back to Africa a couple of times. I speak four languages. Um, you know, I, I'm even in technology. So there's a lot of programming languages involved there as well. Like learning new languages is something that kind of comes easy to me. Um, and I think there's just something about uh, being able to kind of, adapt in a new environment that is a special skill of like third culture kids, you know, or whatever you want to call them. Um, I think there is a lot of pros and cons to that, though, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, there's, you know, you can, you can benefit a lot from that, but you can also be at a disadvantage a lot from that. So uh, what, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I, again, like, I, I think generally speaking, it, ends up being an advantage because you and I can have these types of conversations about it and really like ponder uh, deeply about like things that not only like make us who we are, but what do we do with this? Yeah. Um, you know, it may seem like a power. It may also seem like a weakness. You know, I often identify with kids uh, and third culture kids. I, I like to remove the term kids because, you know, we are all adults, but really the it affected us when we were young. And really thinking about it, you know, I, I've after talking with a lot of people, it's either like you want to do something with it where you want to relate to people or you want to, you know, create some sort of awareness and understanding that, you know, there's something bigger than just physical boundaries that that or imaginary boundaries in our mind. So I often try to like go around the humanist realm and you always try to relate with people from a humanist angle. Um so that's that's my thing. But, you know, I grew up in Asia. I grew up in um, and I spent a lot of time in North America as well. I'd be curious to understand, like, what what point did you identify that your experience growing up was unique or, or different from certain people uh, around you, like people who were just stayed in one area their whole life or just, you know, identified with one piece of land? Yeah. So that's a great question. I think. I started to kind of notice these things probably like after high school and then like beginning into college, kind of like getting into my adulthood, um, started living on my own, earning my own money, started kind of getting a better understanding of like how the world actually works beyond like the boundaries of like living with your parents and having your parents kind of do everything for you. Um, not that that was always the case growing up, of course, because, you know, I wasn't re really privileged. So I had to do a lot for myself, which is why I'm very individualistic these days. But um, I, I think, you know, one of the first times I've noticed that I was kind of I don't know if different is the right word, but that I've that I had different uh, a different upbringing and different experiences was probably. I think my, maybe when I was like, actually, this was a younger experience. When I was uh, 10, about 10 or 11 years old, when I went back to Guinea for the first time, and, you know, I have no recollection of Guinea when I was like born there, when I was brought up, you know, up to four or five years old before I came to America. I have like one memory of that time period. So the sort of cultural impression that was put on me is like almost non-existent. 
Whereas like my sister, for instance, who was a couple years older than I am, she remembers vividly her experiences in Guinea before we came to America, right? And so in that sense, I'm very American. Um, and so when I was about 10 or 11 years old, going back to Guinea, it was a, a major culture shock for me because uh, I, I think the way people live life over there and the sort of the cultural norms over there are like vastly different than they are in America, right? Like in America, we're capitalists, we're individualists, you know, land of the free, you say what you want, you say what you think, you live out your, your imagination, like you are who you are. Whereas in Guinea, it's, it's a very sort of socialist, cultural sort of groupthink environment where you know, you don't say certain things, you have to behave in certain ways, you know, you, you speak your, to your elders in certain ways. The, it's just like a completely different environment. And so I, I did have a lot of that from my parents growing up, but being thrown into that environment, kind of being thrown into the deep end, like actually being there on the ground is much different than like what you might pick up from your parents who were brought up in that culture and who are kind of indoctrinating some of those values in you, but you still live in America, right? Like you're going to American schools every day, you have American friends, you're living in American culture, you're eating American food, you're you're being indoctrinated with American values all day, every day, whether it's through like the, the media or like through, you know, TV and entertainment or like through, you know, wh whatever the avenue is, right? And so I, I think early on, like that 10, 11 year age is like when I really started thinking about like cultural differences and how and where I stand within society. That's a very interesting thing you brought up about, you know, uh, the East versus West, not just East, West, but just like, you know, the collective thinking, collectivist thinking of family first. Uh, and then, you know, in the West or in, the, in America where you know, you have to think about yourself, you dig yourself out of your rut, you know, you are responsible for where you are, individualistic thinking, you know. I always identified more with, you know, kids growing up that were from that side, that collectivist thinking more, because third culture kids that grew up in the West also have, you know, different, you know, experiences. But I had that similar experience growing up where I was like, you know, thrust into this environment from, you know, going in Asia, thinking about your family, your elders, talking to them a specific way, you know, having a, a formal tone and voice when you're talking to specific people uh, and, and only being informal with your friends or like specific people that you're allowed to. And then coming to the West and coming to, you know, US and Canada, it's like, it's a free-for-all, right? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're here to establish who you are as an individual and your own brand. And your own brand matters, you know, so much more than, you know, your family brand or whatever you're trying to sort of get into. So I always find that that dichotomy a little interesting. At yeah. What language do you speak at home with your folks? Yeah, so, I mean, growing up, uh, actually, it's interesting. So when we first came to America, my parents were told not to speak our native languages or French to me because, you know, that's crazy. Whoever advised them told them that, you know, we wouldn't learn English if they God. kept speaking those languages to us, which is completely false, right? It's like, like kind of, yeah, exactly. yeah, like what, what kind of hogwash is that, yeah, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, so like growing up, like we speak, um, so like in Guinea, there are like three sort of major tribal languages and Susu is one of them. Mm -hmm. And so growing up, we spoke Susu and um, Guinea was also colonized by France. And so French is the national language there. 
And so there was a lot of French growing up as well. And then obviously English was thrown into the mix because, you know, that's, you have to speak English in America. So that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of, I think in English nowadays, actually, like I, you know, some people might think in their native language or, but I actually think in English just to give you an idea of how like. That's a good, a good like transition because I always ask, you know, other third culture kids, like at what point in your life did you start changing the language in your mind, the language in which you think? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. And I honestly don't remember yeah, it happens in phases, right? Yeah, it, it, I think it is very phased. And um, for me, though, like because I came to America so young and because I like almost don't remember anything from Guinea uh, from when I was like four or five years old being raised there, except like very select few memories. Um, English is like the dominating language in my mind, although I speak my native language fluently, like I'm, I'm a native. I speak French well. I understand French well. Uh, I speak English well, and I, I learned a lot of Arabic growing up because of like religious backgrounds. Um, and so, but like English is the dominating language there. Um, and I, I think it's, it's interesting though, like getting into the topic of language, how, you know, depending on who you're around, you can actually speak different languages or speak different dialects, right? Like, and I'm sure you're familiar with like code switching, for instance, right? 100%, like, yeah. And so like growing up in America, moving around a lot, you know, in some areas I was around, like you, like right now, how I'm speaking English is kind of like my default, right? Because I'd say that's because of where I was raised in like, you know, the Midwest in Kansas. Mm -hmm. You just have like clean English, just like normal English. Whereas like when I moved around to the East Coast, I was in certain demographics where like this kind of English isn't spoken, right? It's kind of like broken English. It's it's a little bit hood or ghetto, yeah, you know, yeah. there's like slang thrown in there. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have to pick up on this, these kind of dialects because that's just, that's how you fit in, right? And so code switching is something that I think I picked up on that in like middle school to high school because that's just what you have to do to be normal in that environment. Otherwise, you know, you might get picked on for like speaking like like a nerd or like speaking quote unquote white. Yeah. Or you might feel like you've been boxed into a stereotype, right? I, I, I always find that, you know, uh, a lot of people who identify with different belongings, different culture, don't belong in one piece of land. They always figure out, they, they always try to fight a stereotype. And I always like that. I always like seeing that. And I learned from that growing up because when I came to Canada and, and you know, North America, when I was traveling to for work or whatever reason, you know, some of the stereotypes that I had to battle was like, okay, Indians are, you know, in call centers all the time. So I had to do like, you know, my best call center accent or whatever, right? Or like, you know, then there's like everything from, uh, you know, techie or somebody who understands everything about tech to like a cab driver. So like, you know, some of the some of them are negative and some of them are positive, right? Sure. And then the positive ones you try to use to your advantage. And you're like, okay, sure, yeah, I understand a lot about tech and you're trying to like move, navigate your way in that world. Right. But when when it impacts you in a way, you're like, well, I'll, I'll fight against this stereotype. It, it becomes the code switch, like really switches on even more because you're like, listen, I know something you don't. I know exactly. something that goes beyond that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's like, there's like a unique insight in that, you know? And I always like to say, that's that's actually a good point because, you know, some people are born just like mathematically inclined, for instance, right? Like, it's like, they just understand the mathematics in like an intuitive way that like most people don't. And they can just like excel in like mathematics and those kind of topics in school. Other people are born, you know, really sort of 
rhythmically inclined like they're good dancers and like they're singers and they're kind of creative others are born like really good artists it's like this is their innate their their natural talent that they don't really have to try at and i think you know being a sort of third culture kid i think one of my innate things that i've either i was born with i don't know if i could say i was born with it but that i've at least picked up on growing up through my experiences is kind of being able to read the room in the sense that, you know, if I'm in a group of people, I can kind of pick up on where people are from, what their kind of cultural backgrounds are, what their upbringings are, what their biases are, you know, and I I think it's like a unique skill. It's like a unique insight on the world. And, you know, I'm not sure how to use that effectively yet. You know, I, I think what you're doing here, like this podcast is a really effective use of that skill set. And, you know, I've been pondering on this recently, actually, because I'm like, how can I actually impact the world in like a positive way with with my unique characteristics? In terms you know, of the- Just the fact that you're thinking this is more than what 99% of people are doing with their skills. You know, I right. see, you see probably, cause you're in tech, you probably see a ton of talented folks oh, yeah. who are logically there. You know, right. they have the, the mathematic ability, they have the ability to understand complex things. And you're like, why aren't you solving world hunger? Why aren't you solving like the crises that matter to, to us? Why are you, you know, doing X, Y, and Z? And I think you, what you're talking about is EQ. And I think EQ is just so important today. Yeah. And, you know, if you were to pass this on to your future generations and, and talk to your family, you know, if you were to pause this in a moment in time and talk to your family, you'd be like, listen, I understand your emotions. I understand how you guys feel. And, you know, I we, you understand what the right way forward is. Right. And yeah, at the, it, yeah it's it's a, I feel like just the fact that your brain is there about thinking about what to do with it is, is a is a good positive step. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, you know, reaffirming to hear. I, I think that, you know, EQ and like emotional intelligence is something that's kind of undervalued in the world right now, because, you know, we live in this very sort of secular, at least in the West, we live in this like very sort of secular world where everything has to kind of be reduced or quantified in some like sort of scientific sort of mathematical reductionist sense. And the problem is like the social sciences are not that way, right? Like you can't quantify a so, like a sort of human experience. Um, and I think one of the problems with that is that when you get into like the realms of psychology and like, you know, emotional awareness and things like this, especially in like corporate America, it's, you know, you start to get into this dangerous territory where it's almost, I don't want to call it taboo, but it's a topic where there's like a misalignment uh, amongst like different demographics and different people. And so there's always this friction there when you want to talk about these things. There's always groups of people who are emotionally inclined and groups of people who aren't because they're more sort of uh, inclined sort of from like a data point of view. And I, I think there's a big clash there in the world right now. And I think that, you know, if more people were did have a lot more EQ and things of that nature, that that the world, I don't want to say the world would be like a better place, because like, what does that even mean, right? How do we define that? But I, I think that we would be able to have much more open uh, communication, much more uh, clear 
uh, understanding of one another. Um, and, and those things kind of pave the way to a better world in a sort of broad sense. And that's what you were brought up with, right? I, I think one thing that we all forget uh, from in the West, and especially when we focus on the West, because the power is there, right? The, the influence is there, the money is there. When, it, when we talk about like distribution of wealth and we talk about distribution of opportunity, you know, I do see a time in which like, you know, the, the world equalizes a bit and we stop thinking about borders. But I think then it presents with a different problem in the future, which is like you said, you know, we've optimized our left brain, our analytic side of our brain so much where we've really created a good way of understanding you know, GPS, uh, we understand computers, we understand, you know, biometrics, we understand what we're made of. What we don't understand is what do we do with it, right? And so I think, you know, this, the, the pandemic was like the great equalizer where, you know, we had all this technology to stay at home and entertain ourselves and monitor each other and add devices. But one thing we forgot was like, maybe what we need to focus on is a quality of life, right? Uh, that balances some of the stuff that you grew up with, you know, uh, when you were a kid, when you understood that family matters, you know, deep relationships matter. And, you know, some of the, the, the stuff that people face in the West is, you know, uh, loneliness crisis, you know, feeling alone, feeling left out, not feeling like they belong. And that's what leads to psychopathic behavior, I think, is, you know, in corporate world or in the political world, people are just psychopaths because they miss the connections. You know, right. that that people make very easily in the rest of the world. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. You know, one of the things that I think that I that I cherish a lot from my sort of third world background is that there was this community aspect to, to things. And you know, interestingly, like when I was growing up, I never had any sense of like anxiety or depression or any of these kinds of things. And it's not that I didn't experience them because I mean, I'm a human being. We all experience these emotions and these sort of mental conditions, but I didn't really know what they were. I had never, like, I was never in enough of a rut to really have to even talk about these things. And I think one of the reasons for that is because of the fact that I was always surrounded by this sort of a community of people, whether it was like my religious background, because I, I grew up very religious. Or whether it was like just the nature of like the sort of socialist uh, community, like in, in Guinea and like the Guinean communities, even here in the U.S. And there was always this sense of belonging, in a sense. Uh, but at the same time, like as I grew up and as I became more sort of individualistic and, you know, as the American society is like, oh, go do this, go do that. They're sort of pulling you away from these values that you grew up in. I, you know, for the first time in my life, when I was about 20 years old, I had a panic attack. You know, I had no clue what that was. I'd never experienced something like that before. And I was in college at this time. And I went to um, the uh, counselor and the first, the very first thing they did, can you, can you guess what that was? The ver first thing they recommended? Dude, I have no idea. <laughs> they sent me straight to a psychiatrist who wow. then proceeded to prescribe me pills, right? Jesus. And it's like, this is the kind of world we we live in now in the West where everything can be reduced into some kind of like measurable thing, right? Because it's like, that's the mindset. Quantity, quantity over quality, right? It's quantifiable and it's measured, like you said, 
right. trying to look at it from this overly logical lens, you're right. missing and missing emotion completely. It, exactly. And it's like, you know, I don't know what it was, but something about that, I was really averse to like taking pills, right? So like they gave me these, like, you know, I'm sure you've heard of like Xanax, for instance, yeah. these benzodiazepines and there's like there's like another branch for ssris for depression just uppers right just uppers yeah uppers and downers and and so they, they gave me these uh benzos and you know after about a week of taking these i was like this works too well there was like an intuition that i had that i was like this isn't right you know and i actually went back to the psychiatrist and i gave them the pills back because i didn't you know i read stories about like people getting addicted to these things and like long and so on yeah I was very analytical in that way, and I still am to this day. And um, so, I, you know, I wasn't a fan of that kind of thing. And so that, but that led me down this path of learning about different ways to cope with these kinds of things, right? Like mm-hmm. things like mindfulness and just kind of like, you know, going within and learning more about yourself and your own sort of human nature, learning about, you know, why is it that I'm thinking, like, why are these thoughts coming into my head? Why am I thinking in these ways? Why are other people thinking in these ways? And kind of trying to like figure out these mechanisms of like human nature. And I think going down that path, as opposed to going down the path of like quantifying everything is something that's like really important and like vastly missing in society right now. But on the other hand, I think it's, it's something that's growing, right? Like, like, you know, ironically, we could look at the curve, like we could look at the data around these things. And, and it's actually, these are growing in society right now, which is a great thing, right? Like the technology platforms are actually helping to facilitate these things. Like this podcast that we're recording right now, it's, you know, maybe five people will hear about this. Maybe 500 people will hear about it. Maybe 5 million people will hear about it. And that's a certain kind of exposure that we might not have had 20 years ago. To, to kind of extend these ideas outward to people that need to hear it. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of value in that. And uh, it makes me optimistic um, in the fact that the world will get progressively better as time goes on and that emotional intelligence and EQ and these kinds of things will just continue to grow. And the question is like, it's kind of like a balance between two different hemispheres, right? Like, are we, is EQ going to overtake the world? And then the sort of logic-based, secular-based thinking is going to be diminished a little bit? Or is it, or will they like sort of balance each other out a little bit and find this like equilibrium where there's like this perfect state of harmony? Or will they kind of fight back and forth? And is it like a forever fight? Absolutely. When you talk about things like a cancel culture is like the over- indexing of eq right social justice social justice like 2.0 where it's like where it's like human rights are a necessity and that's normal but talking about canceling somebody who said something bad on twitter one day really like that's not what our energy should be focused on and you're absolutely right it's not reasonable right for us to do that it's it's a very slippery slope getting into things like cancel culture like i understand there's like a value in that right like if you talk about like imagine some hypothetical person who's on YouTube and he, you know he's he's telling young children to like go and like drink poison or something right like there's there's like a sort of responsibility there to like what do we do about that do we monitor that and do we manage that and do we uh sort of quote unquote cancel that person and not allow them to have a platform to 
to spread these like dangerous ideas or is do we sort of let ideas go out because freedom of speech and what have you and we just let the best idea win where there could be like a second hypothetical person who's saying don't watch that guy's video because it's dangerous and here's why and that gets more attention because it's you know it's better for humanity and the person who's spreading the dangerous ideas just doesn't get watched by anybody because everybody thinks he's a lunatic like there's many ways to go about these things and i think the direction we've taken, at least in like the tech industry, Silicon Valley in particular, is this very sort of totalitarian approach where, you know, if you're not in line with their views of what is right and what is wrong, then you're, you're gone, right? And I was reading a story this morning even about um, this senator, I don't remember what state it was, but this senator actually got, um, I think it was on YouTube, the senator got banned from YouTube for a week because they were spreading misinformation about COVID-19, Amazing. right? And and that's one of these, again, it's like a slippery slope, right? Yeah. And I, I get it. It's like there are arguments going both ways, like, oh, well, this is why we have to ban this person because they're spreading bad information. But then you could argue against it too. Like, well, what does that lead to? It sets a certain kind of legal precedent that that we can now start to silence people who have opinions that go against the status quo, even if they're right. Which is like the glue between the two that becomes critical thinking, right? Because I think one thing we all uh, aspire to, to learn more of is critical thinking, like throughout our lives, right? Understand when to use EQ and IQ and in what balance, right? Because like you said, you know, if you go to a doctor, they might prescribe you something because all you're talking about is a deficiency in one thing. But, you know, a doctor will never know who you are as a person. They'll never know, like, well, you know, you actually need a little bit of this and mixed with that, right? Um, and maybe your your mom or dad and your family might know more about that. So they, that you maybe talk to them and come to a consensus, right? But again, it, it just becomes more and more powerful for our own brains to be like, well, what we need is a little bit of a critical understanding of, of you know, you know, when to stop, when right. to ban, when to to create a little bit of a, a perimeter around, uh, you know, something that is could be sensitive or could be insensitive. Yeah, um, and that's a that that doctor point is actually a great point because I always like to use. There's this example. There's a guy named David Ferrucci. He was the director of engineering at uh, IBM during the whole IBM Watson thing. And I think he sort of led that. I, I don't want to misspeak, uh, maybe double check my facts here, but he- Okay, we'll check in post, don't worry. Yeah, yeah he, he was director of engineering um, at IBM Watson, or at IBM during the whole IBM Watson thing. And he kind of led that thing to completion. And uh, he was telling a story once about his father who was in a coma. And he was laying, or he was at the doctor's office with his father in a coma and the doctor using deductive reasoning as doctors tend to do, right? Said, based on all the information here, based on all the facts here, I've deducted that the best thing to do is pull the plug on your father. And David Ferrucci, you know, he was like, that's crazy. I'm not pulling the plug on my father. He's like, well, that's your deductive reasoning, but what is the inductive reasoning, right? Like what is, based on my father's unique circumstances and his unique situation, not this kind of broad statistical deductive reasoning that you've done, but his unique situation, what can we deduce from that? Or what can we induce from that? 
And it turns out that they didn't pull the plug on his father and his father ended up living because of that, right? And so this gets into a very interesting topic. And I actually did a paper on this in my freshman year of college about medical malpractice. And this is, this is a very big problem in the world, right? Like doctors, we trust them with our lives and oftentimes they make the wrong choice. And, you know, there's a certain kind of power imbalance there. And there's a certain kind of way of thinking in medicine that is very deductive and there's no room for these kinds of inductive reasoning, which is why, you know, I love things like mindfulness. And, you know, I'm not saying that doctors don't have their place. I'm not saying that deductive reasoning and logical analysis doesn't have its place. What I'm saying is like you're saying that there's like a, there's a point of diminishing returns and there's a point at which we can kind of merge these two ways of thinking to create a better solution in the long run. And I, I, you know, I think there's like a really interesting, there, there needs to be more studies on this, you know, Uh, we need to really kind of prove for the deductive thinkers in the world that this is beneficial because that's the only real way that like we can get traction on some of these ideas. Right. Well, it's like a moral high ground, right? Like where, you know, somebody could sit on a perch and say, well, you know, we've saved two more lives than, than we, than lives have been lost. Right. And that is the deductive reasoning, defending deductive reasoning. Um, I think there, there's, Enough, like you, like what you said, to, to back up there, and even within deductive reasoning, to say there's always more science can or medical science can do to learn in terms of quality how to sort of improve, right? And you know, if 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 something like what we've just experienced in the last two years has has shown us, it, it it's been a wake up call that you know we don't need to be reactive; we need to be more proactive with our health, and you know, mental health you know, starts as like something that's more and more important. And for doctors included, right? Like medical practices, we're so focused on, like you said, you know, focusing on things to, pro- to like, you know, react to certain uh, problems. But, you know, proactively, there hasn't been as much of a focus on like, what can you do to improve your immune system, your mental health, right? How do we how do we combat these issues so that we don't well, end up right? generally like, well-being? Yeah, it's like... Yeah. You know, oftentimes a lot of these conditions are just, it's like, there's no, it's like, you don't have to prescribe a pill for it. Maybe you just change the way you think a little bit, or, or maybe you just need to socialize more, or maybe you just like need a little bit more sunlight. You need to, maybe you need to smoke a little pot. Maybe you need to have a, a, a glass of wine a day and, and, and socialize. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah. it's like, but we live in a world where it's like, that's not enough. It's like, no, 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 no. it has to be deduced into something measurable because that's the that's that's that left brain that we've over optimized we've optimized the crap out of it we're like you need to buy 10 products to to get rid of this this habit but honestly like you said it's it's usually the product is in your mind right most of the time it's like it's a it's a willpower which which gets into i think this other interesting point about like qualia right where it's like you know what is all of our you, like, what is experience? Like, how do we even define that? How do we measure that? Again, left, this is my left brain working. It's like, how do we quantify, you know, experience, right? And I think experience is something that's really interesting because it's different for all of us, right? Like, I could go, like, I have dreadlocks in my hair right now. And to me, it's like, oh, it's just an interesting hairstyle. Like, let me try it out for a couple of years. And then, 
you know, before I had dreadlocks, I had short hair and I would brush my hair. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing called like uh, waves. It's like 360 yeah. waves. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I, you know, I just, and then before, after that, before I got my dreads, I had like a sort of high top, you know, high top fade where I had like tall hair and like a fade on the side. And I'm very eccentric in that way. I like to try out different hairstyles. I'm glad you went with the hair because I had like 10 different kinds of hairstyles too. So exactly. I, feel, I feel validated. It's hair, right? It's like, it's my own form of expression. It's like, I'm very eccentric. And for whatever reason, I'm like genetically wired to express myself in certain kinds of ways. And hair is one of the ways I do that. And like, interestingly enough, if you walk, if you walk in a certain neighborhood with dreadlocks, the quality of the people who are experience, like who are perceiving you is, is like, you know, there's an experience that's happening there where their fight or flight response might kick in, you know? And it's like, why is that happening? Why is it that to me, it's just, oh, this is a cool hairstyle. It's a form of expression, but to somebody else, there's a threat there. There's, there's like this danger impulse that comes into play. And, you know, I think that is, that's something that needs to be discussed more as well, like experiences. And, and that's one of the benefits of being a third culture kid, actually, is that you can be aware of that kind of thing. And you can either like, maybe you can change yourself in the sense that like you tie your hair up and you dress nice based on where you're going as to not offend people, right? Or you can just be yourself, but you know the ramifications of being yourself in the sense that certain people are going to perceive you in certain ways. And that's just life you know, that's their problem. They have to deal with that, but I'm going to be who I'm going to be in this moment because I don't want to be walking on eggshells all the time. And there's this constant back and forth, you know, it's like you're constantly ebbing and flowing between those two ideas in your mind. At least I am. And, you know, I, I think there's, I haven't found the middle ground yet where it's like, there's this perfect harmony. I found like the perfect solution, the end all be all that fits well in every scenario because yeah. that doesn't exist. You always have to be adapting like a chameleon based on the environment you're in. And it's kind of exhausting, I'll be honest. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's, I think it's like you're, you're onto something because like when you're talking about homogenous societies, right? Like when there's something that's too homogenous and you enter as something that as a, a creature, like let's say even a, a human being that is not homogenous, like, you know, from a, that standpoint, like everybody, everything that is homogenous in that area will be like aware on their feet be like what is that right on guard and i think there's there's a lot to be said there because you know as countries what we've created is these physical borders where you have to prescribe certain sets of beliefs and values to you know adhere to a norm like so you know south of let's say you know texas you're going to be like in, in south texas it's different north texas is a little bit more different if you go to you know uh georgia it'll be different go to new york it'll be different and the point is like that is created within those borders and then you start having alignments and beliefs right. um, but the more alignments you have the more you find that this is as broad as you can go, right? Then you're like, why stop at New York? Why can't we go to Mexico? Why can't we go beyond? And ultimately, then you're like, well, these borders that we've created are more restrictive than they are, uh, you know, uh, providing any sort of insight. But I think one thing that's really important that you mentioned, and I'll go back to this because uh, I was curious, you know, you mentioned mindfulness and, you know, for somebody young to think of this, I always like to, imagine that maybe religion or spirituality played a big role in your life. What role did religion play as you were growing up and, and going to these, these countries? 
Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up in a very religious background. Uh, we were, so in Guinea, I think the entire country is about 89% Islamic, right? And then the remainder is like Christian and like some other random sort of tribal beliefs or whatever. And so I grew up Muslim. I grew up in a Islamic Muslim background. And that was, that was my life, you know, um, pray five times a day, reading the Quran, like learning Arabic. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of good values in Islam. Like, obviously, you know, we all know about like the sort of extremist ideologies, but, you know, that wasn't my reality, right? My reality was the sort of moderate kind of just, you know, everyday Muslim you'll see walking down the street. Who's and that's like 95% of any religious like that's the vast majority right? vast majority yes about, like, the sort of sensationalist ideas whether it's like the christian priest who's like raping children or you know like sorry i have no filter but it's like you know. oh good no exactly and plus you can find any hole in any religion and say well this they incited a genocide here this happened this there i completely agree with you but from my understanding a lot of muslim friends that i have they found a, a sense of peace and culture at a young age. Yes. Uh, and, and that related, like you said, you spoke and you started learning Arabic. Yes. And that allows you to speak to multiple people across right. you know, backgrounds. Yeah. And so, like, you know, I think growing up in a religious background was very beneficial for me. And I think it might not have been beneficial for other people. But for me, it was very beneficial. And that's because, you know, I think I was sort of developmentally late in a social sense. I sort of grew up very sort of introverted and kind of quiet. I didn't start talking until later in life. These are things my mom was telling me, right? And, and you know, I think I somebody like me needed that growing up because otherwise I would have been lost, right? And, you know, there might have been a point of like where I, I, I might have gone too far with like lack of being sort of socialized and that wouldn't have been good for me, right? And growing up in that environment, it was very good because while I was isolated in many ways, because, you know, we're constantly moving around, constantly having to, like, find new friends, you know, my parents are constantly traveling, I'm constantly living with other people. And that was a very chaotic environment for a kid to go through growing up. But, but that religious foundation, that was the community that I could always look back to in times of despair. And I think that, you know, that was very valuable growing up. Now, as I got older and as I kind of the left brain started kicking in more, that's kind of when I started to retreat a little bit from religion for, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. You know, I studied a lot of different religions growing up. I was a very curious person. Like, I, you know, I read the Bible, read the Old Testament, you know, the Torah, like, you know, I read a lot of uh, Eastern books like the Tao Te Ching, you know, there's like a Taoism there. Learned a lot about Buddhism when I lived in Asia for a couple of years. It's amazing. So like, I, I'm like well-versed in religion. And you know, one thing I like to do is I like to kind of pluck ideas from all of them, right? Like a lot of Eastern philosophies give you this grounding of like balance and like sort of, you know, being balanced about things in life. Whereas like in the West, we're very like sort of balls to the wall, like biggest everything, strongest everything, the most amount of everything. It's like, you know, it's very sort of extreme in our, in our like beliefs here and in terms of like you know like make the most money have the biggest car have the biggest house have the and so balance having these different philosophies and these different ideologies and kind of finding a way to kind of marinate them in your mind in such a way where you find this like this well-rounded balance 
I found that very helpful in life. And not to go on a tangent, but I, I think overall religion was a plus in my life. And I think um, overall religion could be a plus in many people's lives, especially those that kind of grew up with like a secular worldview where there's no sort of, there's no spirituality and there's no religion. None of that stuff exists. It's, it's all data. It's all science. So it's like this materialist worldview where everything is kind of bottom up from like atoms and, you know, um, I think that there is a certain community aspect to religion that is beneficial. But I also think that there's a lot of aspects of religion that are not good and they're not conducive to living in um, a positive society. And some of those things are like we're saying about like the different cities and the different like nation states, these like these boundaries that are set up where in uh, my religion, what I've observed or, you know, my in Islam, what I've uh, what I've observed is that, you know, just like nation states, there are borders and those borders say, oh, that person is different. That person is other than us. So we have to kind of dismiss them or we have to treat them differently. Or, you know, that person doesn't believe what we believe. And so they're going to hell. Or, you know, that person has dreadlocks. So they're going to hell. I mean, there's a lot of these ideas that just, it's like when you think about them critically, they don't make sense, right? And like they, a hierarchy gets established, right? Yes, naturally. Established, classism gets established, you know, elitism gets established, all these little things. And I think that is, you know, it's a simplistic worldview. Like, it's not the full picture. There's a lot of value in it, but it's not the full picture. So if we have to take a step back and kind of reanalyze our assumptions, we have to sort of look at our assumptions again and ask, like, is this the right way of thinking? Like, is this the way of thinking? Can what, what you're touching on is something very cool because I always figure this out uh, at, uh, when I'm talking to people who growing up in religious environments. And I had religion growing up too, or like more on Hinduism, but when I lived in Dubai, we were very respectful of the Islamic religion around us to the fact that we would even you know, fast during Ramadan months sometimes, right? Because like everyone's doing it and why should we stop, right? And ultimately it's a sign of respect, right? And uh, what I learned is, you know, after a while, like religion helps, like you said, it builds a sense of community, it builds a sense of belonging. And a lot of people are missing that in day-to-day in -day life and existentialism, as much as you can, like you say, be deductive about it, you're still on Maslow's hierarchy missing that belonging, right? Yeah. Like, I don't really belong if I'm completely existentialist and I hate everybody. So I think, you know, there's that person that exists, you know, and we know what the stereotype of that person is. You know, if you go to Reddit, I'm assuming somebody with a neck beard yeah. just consistently, you know, contrarian comments, everything that what people say, like, so I, I feel like those people are there in number. But I think every time in religion, when it's brought up, I feel like re reality sets into religion nine out of 10 times. Yeah. It's like, we want to create this harmonious world, but like you said, classism sets in, then sexism, then all this stuff, then all that starts to come in and you're like, well, these are real life problems. And yeah. as much as we love religion, personally, they don't solve these real life problems as well as we would like. Exactly, and, and like the question is, what would solve these real life problems as much as we would like? And, and I don't know that humanity has yet found a model for being that is 
perfect. And, and I don't even know that we can, you know, um, but I think there are models, there are ways of existing that are better than these kind of simplistic models of religion, or even like these simplistic models of like science, right? Like, like using Reddit as an example, like that is, there's a, there's a lot of echo chambers on Reddit. I mean, you know about them. I know about them. Everybody knows. Anybody who uses Reddit knows that if you go to certain subreddits, oh, and you don't think in the way they think. <laughs> and, you're bad. Yeah. You're you're bad. Yeah. And so that is like, it's like a prime example of human mm -hmm. nature when people are given the ability to set boundaries, the ability to exclude people out of those boundaries, then that is what happens. Like that's like a prime example of human nature in a nutshell. And you see that in religion, you see that in corporations, you see that in nation states and governments, you see that in you know little clicks and little cults like on Reddit, you see that everywhere that there is more than one human being involved, where, where there's like a group setting. And I think it's a it's a human problem, you know. I think this is just human nature, and I you know I don't know. I think the only ways of us overcoming that is some kind of transcendental experience, whether that be through you know whatever psychedelic experience. I'm a big fan of psychedelics, and I'd say yeah. like generally speaking, what we're lacking, and you're absolutely right, is when we keep talking about EQ. Uh, a lot of a lot of things we lack mostly is this perspective, right? Like. Uh, you know, and yes, it's kind of psychedelics have a bad rep because a lot of times you have like, you know, the hippie types and the types that didn't really understand it. And like, you know, the stereotypes have been made, but there's a lot of scientific breakthroughs now that I'm so happy about, you know, from uh, psilocybin to like, you know, acid and, and like the the affect, the effects that has on your brain from a micro dosing to like, uh, you know, we didn't know like when when people try it, you know, just on your own. Like if I ate a, uh, you know, cap of mushrooms, I'm like, I don't know how much this is. I don't know what's yeah. the right amount. And somebody's like, it's two grams. And I'm like, okay, I'll have half that. <laughs> you know, like my rule is just have half of what somebody else said. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. Like, so that's, that's where I think like these merger of ideas are great, right? Because yeah. it's like the sort of left brain people will come in yeah. and say, Let's let's quantify things. Let's create proper doses. Here's the effect of this dose, <laughs> that dose. And like there is some value to that, right? Because mm -hmm. then you're not just like blindly taking like five grams of mushrooms. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And like yeah. you have like the worst experience of your life because yeah. you're, you're not in the right set and setting, you're not in the right mindset, you're not around the right people. You know, that's dangerous, right? Like we don't mm -hmm. want people to go down that path. You can do it in an educated way where you know what this dose is going, what kind of impact or what kind of an effect this dose, like one gram of psilocybin mushrooms is gonna have on you. And so I think that is, there's a lot of value in that. And there's a lot of research right now going on, right? Like with, with psychedelics and like, you know, MDMA and psilocybin, even like DMT, ketamine, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now. And I have high hopes for this domain. I think it is, these therapies are going to circumvent the need to, go down the rabbit hole of like benzodiazepines and like SSRIs for people with like mental health issues. And like, like what, you, right? what, what do you think of all the over the top stuff that we get, right? Like the, uh, you know, helping people who are addicts or something like that, for example, uh, forgetting it's an oxy or whatever it ends up being, right? Anything that's happening now from like a pharmaceutical lens is also kind of concerning. Like I think going back to what you were saying, you know, the, the solution has become 
um, a treatment and the treatment has become a, a longer package and the package yep. has become a vacation. You know, it, it's, it's it's extending and pushing like the, the problem under the rug as opposed to like actually dealing with it. And I feel like, you know, eventually, and I, I keep taking it back to Maslow because I feel like our brain is like, you know, establishing levels, right? We, uh, our parents fought tooth and nail and our families fought tooth and nail to give us security. And now, you know, maybe I'm not sure about you, but I always felt like a sense of guilt, right? Like, man, how do I get to have this level of security when my folks didn't uh, growing up, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, no, you, did you ever feel that at some point? Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting point, actually. And that, that hits home a little bit because, like, you're right. Like, I, you know, I was born in a third world country. Uh, my family was poor. Um, and my parents, my mom got the opportunity to study abroad in Cuba and she, you know, she got her bachelor's in Cuba. She learned Spanish. She, and then she got the, she got a visa opportunity to come study her master's in education in the U S which is why my sister, my mom and I were the first of our entire bloodline to, to come to America. Right. And I think that we have different standards of living because of that um you know being brought up in america i mean you know i mean canada america very similar like the standard of life here is not the same as the standard of life in africa it's not the same as the standard of life in, in certain parts of asia it's not the same as the standard of life in you know certain parts of central south america in many parts of the world right even like maybe certain parts of europe right um or like you know certain parts of like russia or, there's like a different standard of life and the thing is that we all become accustomed to our standards of life. And when we get to a point where um, there's like a lack of understanding of our of the differences of our standards of life, I think there can be clashes there. And there have been clashes in my own life because of this, you know, we I have family back home in Guinea. They, you know, they grew up in this very sort of dependent mindset, right? Where it's like, because it's a socialist country, they've been conditioned their whole lives to think that somebody is going to give, right? Like they, they just kind of sit around and they're expecting to receive because that's that's what they've known growing up. It's like, you can't even blame them for that. That's, that's what has been indoctrinated into them their whole life. And so they have you, their distant cousin who lives in America and you know they're watching Hollywood movies all the time. They have this, this model of what it is to be an American in their brain, this model, which is completely false, by the way, right? Like, um, and and so they're looking to you as their savior, like as their bank account, as their, you know, their everything. And I think that there is a lack of empathy there. There's a lack of understanding there because, you know, yes, on one hand, I have more opportunity than a lot of these people. I, I've lived a different standard of life uh, you know, I, I have more earning power, I, I earn more, I have more, so on and so forth. But on the other hand, it took me a lot of hard work to get here. On the other hand, I, I earned everything I have in life. And um, I didn't have to, I didn't, I wasn't afforded the privilege of being able to just kind of sit around and be handed everything as they were, because that's, that's what happens in a sort of socialist world, right? Where it's like, government's taking care of you it's purchasing power right like what you're making may seem a lot back home but it's like in america your cost of living is higher too exactly right it's like you have to pay more to eat like what they're eating over there you know 
I mean, I mean, it's, it's crazy. There's so many, we could talk about this topic for hours, right? There's so many different variables at play here. But and, I love, I love what you're saying about that because honestly it comes down to intent, right? Yeah. Like, because it happens all the time. It, you could be seen as the ticket out, right? Of their misery. And it happens all the time when you talk about your experiences, probably even to like people from the U S they probably think, Oh man, Lansana, you're such a privileged dude and you're yeah. probably rich, but you're like, listen, I didn't get to belong in one place until I like chose to settle. Exactly. And, and like, you know, the intent there is that, so like the way I like to pursue these things is, I understand, like, I kind of look at these things mechanistically in the sense that, okay, let's assume that I just give handouts and I just give everybody what they ask and like, I'll run this model, right? It's like, okay, let's assume I do that. What does that look like? What is the outcome of that? And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that that is not, there's no good outcome there. And the reason for that is because, first of all, you can't sustain that, you know, unless you're like a rich billionaire, which I'm not, like, you can't sustain that. There's there's like dozens of people back there who are dependents. You're one individual who not only has to work and take care of yourself here in America, which is hard enough to do as it is, especially in like the growing economic climate here. But then you also have to take care of dozens of people back there who are help, you know, who are seemingly helpless and they're, de they're seemingly dependent on you. So when you run the numbers, that's not possible, first of all. Second of all, even if it were possible, is it good to do that? Because what you're doing is you're, you're sort of training them to be dependent. You're, you're creating this codependent pattern. And that's not, you know, what happens when you pass away? Then what are they going to do? Like, that's not a good, sustainable future. And the so families start battling too, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, everybody's entitled and that's just not a good, I, when I like think about the world in that way, I, I think that is a suboptimal approach. And so another model I've ran and considered is a model of, you know, I'm sure you've heard the saying, like, you know, rather than giving a man a fish, um, teach him how to fish, right? And I, I ran that model too. And I think that's a step up. That's a step in the right direction. But even that, I think, isn't fully there. And the reason I think that's not fully there is because, you know, when you've grown up your whole life to think that you can't do anything on your own, when you've grown up your whole life to think that you're incapable, that you're not enough, that you need somebody to save you. I mean, that's, there's like a deeply ingrained psychological condition there that is not, that you can't eradicate that in one conversation, one motivational speech, right? And so just like giving, it's like, hey, why don't you just go start your own business? Like, you know, it's like that, that's not enough, right? that doesn't change an entire population of people who've been instilled with these ideas. And so this third idea that I'm now kind of experimenting with is an extension of, uh, is, is an extension of that, which is instead of, um, rather than teach, uh, give a man a fish, teach him how to fish, instead of that, rather than give a man a fish, give him a fishing rod and then teach him how to fish. Because with that fishing rod, they can then fish themselves, right? Because if you teach them how to fish, they're always going to be like, but wait, I don't have a fishing rod. Or, or where do I get a fishing rod? How, how, you know, but like if you give them that fishing rod first, and the fishing rod doesn't have to be money. It can be, you know, insert X, like whatever X is based on 
a certain person's characteristics or a certain person's unique circumstances. It's a stepping stone. It's just a stepping stone. And it doesn't have to mean money. It can be an idea. It can be, you know, it can be mentoring. It can be a line, an open line of communication. So you can be their mentor. I mean, that could be, that could mean anything, right? But just give them a fishing rod. And I, I found so far that this is more effective. Now, are there more effective methods of, you know, empowering people? Sure, maybe, you know, I'm not claiming to have found like the panacea here or anything like that, right? Like, but but I, what I'm saying is that I think this is a step in the right direction. It works. It's I found it to be effective. It's a way where you can empower people and sort of liberate people to not only come up with their own solutions, but but to learn how to be leaders of their own lives and to learn how to lead others as well. Um, and it, it creates a situation where there's no, it's not totalitarian, right? Because if I'm always giving you, if I'm always having to teach you, or if I'm always having to give you something, then that creates an imbalance of power where now I can sort of control you if I wanted to, if I were that kind of person, right? And I think that's not, that's the world we live in already, right? And we want to create a better world than that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with these ideas, these different models of like how to create a new world. And I haven't quite found the perfect answer yet, but but we're getting there. You know? I like it. I like I love the, the fact that that's something that's in your mind, because I want to connect with people who consistently have those ideas, too. And it's not just me. I think there's just tons of people who are thinking of those types of solutions and like. I, I want to go back to, you know, a the idea, the, the emotional idea of, you know, coming up with these solutions, because when we think about it, like if you come up with these models in our heads, we always think about incentives, right? We right. want to make sure that somebody has an incentive to do good, which creates a cascade effect and so on and so forth. You mentioned a programming language uh, as part of one of your languages, which I thought was very unique. And I thought like that's a very good way of looking at the future. Do you think, you know, beyond the deductive reasoning of programming language, do you think programming eventually could understand emotions and could that be factored into it? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And actually, um, there's a lot of research going on around right now in this domain. So are you familiar with the um, term AGI, artificial general intelligence? Yeah, yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's basically this, so right now in the AI community, uh, the AIs that exist right now are very narrow, right? And so basically, meaning you can, you can create an AI that um, is like an image processor, where you give it an image of a cat, and it'll tell you this is the cat. You give it an image of a car, it'll tell you this is the car. But that's it. All it understands is how to process and understand images because it's been trained on like a massive data set of a bunch of images. And it knows that that's a, that's a pattern, pattern, pattern recognition. Pattern recognition. Yeah. But if you ask it, how do you feel? It, it, you know, it, there's no way it can't answer that question, right? And then there's other AIs like computer vision. Like, you know, if you're driving a self-driving car, like there's like uh, radar, there's like LIDAR and it's, and it's taking in light and it's interpreting that as like vision, right? So that's that's a very narrow AI that is computer vision. Then there's AI like recommendation systems, right? Like when you're watching Netflix and at the end of the show, it asks you, how did you like this show? You know, let's say there's like a five-star rating. If you hit five stars on it, well, based on the tags and the categories of that video, it's going to increase a weight in that area so that in the future, you're recommended more videos like that, right? 
and that's another narrow AI. It's, you know, it's, there's like similar algorithms in like social media where it's like, if you're watching a lot of like historical documentaries, you're going to keep seeing more historical documentaries because the YouTube algorithm is like, oh, you, hey, Ashif, you seem to like a lot of historical third culture kid documentaries. Let's show you more of this stuff, right? And so those are like very narrow AIs. And right now, what's happening in the, you know, AI research community and, you know, big companies, small companies like Google, um, and then also even like open source things, like there's this uh, open source community called like OpenCog. Um, they're researching AGI. They're trying to answer the question of, is it possible using computation to, for, for em, uh, emotions or even like consciousness in these kinds of phenomena to emerge? And it's an unanswered question right now. And to answer your question, do I think that it's possible? I think that the phenomena of emotions and the phenomena of consciousness and the phenomena of like there being this sort of entity there, I think that is possible and that that will happen. But the actual substance of that, like, will it be the sort of same? "Quote unquote consciousness in humans, assuming there is a consciousness in humans, will it be the sort of the same qualia, the same human experience that we have? I don't think so. And the reason I now I can't answer that uh, using scientific terms because I'm not that deep in the research, but I, I think that there is a certain. I think that you know these are now going into sort of my spiritual or religious beliefs, right? It's like. I think that human beings are unique in the sense that we are not emergent. We are, our consciousness is not emergent. I think our consciousness is a state that is outside of uh, our lives. And um, I don't have proof for you. I can't answer that with uh, an equation. Um, this is just maybe this is the instilled beliefs of my religious upbringing, right? But you know, even though I'm not religious anymore, there is this iota of hope in me that, you know, we, there is something beyond life. Uh, that's not heaven or hell. That's not what I mean, but the, but the, we go on. And there's so, a design somewhere. Yeah. And there's something beyond this realm. And um, I think that in a computational reality, uh, consciousness can emerge but it's not going to be the same kind. It's like, so how do you define consciousness? Right? That's it, right? We're, we're being biased about the very consciousness right. that we see. Because when we, when we achieve that, we're talking from two conscious beings talking to each other right now. Like you said, I believe too that it's a little out of body for us because we can associate past, present, and future. But I don't know whether... Um, you know, in the future, whether a AI or an AGI can evolve to understand what past, present, and future is, because it's omnipresent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it has its 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 capacity to process information is exponential to ours, right? Like like I can read a book right now, and let's say it's a one hundred page book with you know, let's call it ten thousand words or something like that, right? And you know, after reading that. I might retain, let's say, 10% of the information. Like if it's a novel, I might retain like 90% of it because I'm following a storyline. But if it's like a technical book, I might not retain 100% of that because the human brain is limited. You, you know, we only retain things that kind of stand out to us or 
you know, depending on how we learn, everybody learns differently, but we're not going to retain 100% of that. You give that to a computer, and it's going to retain 100% of it, and it's going to do it exponentially faster than a human being can do it. And so it will be a consciousness of some kind, because it's like, again, how do you define consciousness? But it's not going to be the same kind of consciousness that we are. And it will be able to learn much faster than us. Computers already learn faster than us. It will be able to process information much faster than us. Computers are already able to do that. And, you know, there, I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a question that arises in the not too distant future of ethics and morals around uh, quote unquote sentient robots. And do we are, do they have the same status as human beings? Uh, the, in the same way that like, you know, we don't want to abuse animals because we know animals are, they're right. alive. There's like, there's a live thing there. And so or they, or they just keep enough of us just to be yeah. like, Hey, don't be mean to them, but just keep it, enough of them. It, exactly. Like, it's like, so do we treat robots in the same, like, do they get citizenship of like nation states? Oh, do that's they, why I love Westworld. I don't know if you've seen Westworld. I'm a big fan. I've heard of it, but I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is it one of those like dystopian sort of? It's the same idea. It's like if you distreat um, robots and AI, they start really creating a memory of it and a collection of it. And then they start to to remember how they've been mistreated. Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, no, that's a good point. Because if we do treat robots bad and they have a perfect memory, because again, they're computers, right? Perfect memory, they don't forget anything then do they have the moral compass? Do they have the sort of emotional intelligence? Can they have the emotional intelligence to say, this person treated me bad, but you know what? Let me give them the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. and for the betterment of all of us. Or will they just say, let me annihilate this human being? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, what is, that's a, there's no, that's an open question right now, you know, totally in the research communities, because nobody knows. And it, I think it's going to be one of these things where in the same way where like, you know, nuclear technology ended catastrophically until we learned better. I think really advanced AIs will have a similar outcome, but it's not going to be like a bomb blows up or something. It'll be more like something will go bad. It will go awry and it'll be really hard to turn around because once you let the genie out of the bo bottle, it's like it's out and you can't turn it around anymore. You know, well, and I, I feel like somebody I feel like we did that with the humanity at some point. Right. And yeah. uh, I think we're at, we're at this this point uh, because of it. I'm uh, I'm very I think this conversation is amazing. I think I could talk to you for hours. I like one um, like final question for you before we cap this up. Um, you know, I think. What what reminds me of this conversation, especially when I was talking to you, is like I I was thought of this quote uh, by Mark Twain when he was talking about, and I think he's like one of the OG third culture guys because he traveled east and west and actually lived in different parts and and understood the cultures instead of like simply saying these people are weird and I came back, you know. Um, I think it was he said, you know, people in the east are strong in in uh, in mind. Uh, and are weak in will. So, and so they're strong in spirit, weak in will. Uh, and then people in the West are weak in spirit and strong in will. Uh, and so that's why that, that connection happens. 
I think you're I think you're both. I think I, I start to see that a little bit. I when I talk to other third culture kids, I start to see that a mixture of both, a mixture of passion, a mixture of willpower, a mixture of like and wanting to do something with it. So the the final to, to cap this off, like what is something you want to do? Like if you had a superpower or but just generally, what is something you want to shout out? A good, you know, passion project or something you want to work on, or just something that people could take away from this episode. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there's a number of things I could list off here, but um, in the interest of time, I think, you know, one of the most, at least one of the things that are really important to me as I get older and as I sort of think about legacy and that kind of thing is I want, now this sounds kind of cliche, I want to make an impact on the world. I want to leave the world a better place than I found it when I came into it. And one of my ways of doing that, I think, is actually going back to Guinea and creating sort of like, you know, in an effective altruism kind of way, creating opportunities for people that don't have it. And because, you know, I see a lot of myself and a lot of Guineans that I've interacted with. And, you know, again, because of the differences in standard of life, it's like, you know, people just don't have opportunities. And even if they do have opportunities, they want to be able to see it because they're just not in the environment where that kind of thing is spoken about, or they're not empowered in that kind of way. They don't have entrepreneurs around them. They don't have leaders around them. They don't have, they just don't have that. They're surrounded by people who are doing nothing and people who are just the same as them. And so there's no North star in their life. And I think that's, it goes beyond the boundaries of Guinea. I think even in like Asia, you know, I was lived in Southeast Asia for a while. Like you see a lot of these similar things. I think if I had, if I could have one superpower, it would be to be able to transfer an idea to somebody's mind in such a way where you're, you're, you illuminate them without having to say, speak a single word. Because I think a lot of the world's problems are based around communication differences and understanding and language differences, um, you know, low context, high context societies. Um, and so one of my missions is to go back to these cultures and bring everything I've learned in, from the West, from the East, you know, from my career, from tech, from finances, um, from, you know, IQ and EQ, just combine all these things in one cohesive way and try to transfer ideas into the minds of young children and empower them and liberate them. And I don't exactly know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to figure it out. I think that's amazing. And I think that's one of the, the best things that we can all, I think, combined work on. So if you ever figure that out, <laughs> let me know because I'd be willing to chip in and uh, you know give my two cents on that for sure. 100%. Yeah. I, I don't know how I'm working on it every day, but you know, I yeah. think five years from now you'll see some progress. I promise I'll, you that. Uh, I'd love to check in with you, buddy. I'd love that. Beautiful. Thank, I mean, thanks so much, Ashish. Um, Thank you, know. you so much. Thanks for your time. And I think it's a wonderful chat. And um, I'm going to stop the recording.